0: If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, we are going to look at this parable of the workers in the vineyard. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever had a job that had great perks? Job with good perks. First job I ever had uh, was against my wishes at uh, the local McDonald's where I grew up. Uh, I was 15, and my mom said, you're not going to sit around all summer, and she made me get a job at McDonald's, which I hated. Um, to this day, I still I struggle to eat McDonald's food very often, uh, because one of the perks was you got to eat McDonald's food. I learned to love the Big Mac that summer. Um, <laughs> and had plenty of soda. Um, but along with the perks come the bad parts, like cleaning the bathrooms and cleaning trays and all of that wonderful stuff. Uh, this McDonald's, um, for customers, this is great, for employees, this isn't great, had been voted the cleanest McDonald's on the East Coast. So if you were on cleaning duty, I mean, it was serious cleaning duty, uh, and which new people are on cleaning duty all the time. <laughs> so there are perks of eating Big Macs and there are not perks of cleaning bathrooms. Uh, when I finally got rid of that job, whew, thank goodness, I worked at a sporting goods store and this was right up my alley. So when there weren't many customers, um, we would play uh, home run derby wiffle ball in the back room. If you could hit it up on on top for points and we'd keep points, like ongoing points. And if there really weren't anybody in the store, then we would have dunk contests on the the basketball backboard that was hanging up there. Uh, Or races on those little, we sold shoes there too, those little carts that that the shoe people get to sit on with the slant. And uh, we'd have races where we can sit on them and, and we'd push. Um, there weren't many drawbacks to that job. It was a fantastic job. I worked there straight through college. <laughs> now, I'm told, I met someone once who told me that um, one of the perks of being a pastor, I'm not sure that I'll ever, I'll ever do this, is that cruise ships are always looking for chaplains on their cruise ships. So you can call and get a free cruise if you're willing to be a chaplain. Now, you've got to pay to get there. And if you do, I guess, I've never been on a cruise, there's like excursion stuff you have to pay for. Uh, I said to Rach, knowing my luck, if I chose to do that, we'd have, there'd be like all kinds of breakdowns and people would be having struggles and I'd be counseling people the whole week rather than, than having the perks of being on the cruise ship. Plus, with the cruise ships in the news of lately, I'm not sure it's a desired <laughs> perk anymore. Uh, does your job have perks? Many of, many of yours do. Um, that's part of the reason why you still work there, right? Uh, Or you can think of jobs that you've had in the past that have perks. I was drawn to this question because this whole parable comes out of uh, Jesus' response to Peter, which happens at the end of chapter 19. This is hysterical to me. Uh, Jesus has just uh, talked to the rich young ruler and has said, um, you know, sure, you follow all the laws, But unless you are willing to sell everything that you have and follow Jesus, you can't have the kingdom. And we've talked about that in the past, what that means. So this is what Peter says in response to that. that Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. This is verse 27 of chapter 19. What then will be there for us? (laughs) Love that, right? Classic Peter. Oh, by the way, Jesus, we've like left our families we know Peter was married because Jesus healed his mother-in-law. So Peter has left his family at some level. Now he's saying, I've left all these people. We're following you. What's in it for me? Right? What are the perks of this job for me? Uh, Jesus is actually very gentle with him. There are other times when Jesus is not gentle with Peter. This particularly could have been a great opportunity, but Jesus in uh, his omniscience obviously chose otherwise. Jesus says to him, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones. That's a fantastic perk, right? Imagine being Peter, like, he's asked a, a difficult question, and he's gotten an unbelievable answer. We now know why Peter is so quick to try to kill people when they come to arrest Jesus, right? He's got the picture of twelve thrones, and he's going to be on one of them. This is a wonderful picture for him. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Now Peter is like, this is great. Like the perks have really gone up. He's going to get a throne and he's going to get a hundred times everything that he's had. Fantastic. But many who are first will be last. Uh Uh-oh. And many who are last will be first. Just like Jesus to toss that on the end, isn't it? (laughs) And then, to explain it further, he goes into this parable of the workers in the vineyard. Chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. And he went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found others still standing around. And he asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? And they said, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go, come and work in my vineyard. And when evening came... The owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going all the way to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those who were hired first, uh, when they came, they expected to receive even more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner these who were hired last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. And he answered one of them and said, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Seems to me there are two ways to view the world. You can view the world in a me-centered way, or you can view the world in a God-centered way. And depending upon which choice you make, and we know that life is a garbled mess, so it's not like you choose one and it's always the one, you were vacillating all the time, Uh, most of the time, looking at it centered on me. But however you choose to do that sort of creates for you a, a pathway that leads to certain places. There's a me-centered way to view the world, and there's a God-centered way to view the world. Now, Peter is viewing the world through a me-centered way, even though Jesus gives him fantastic answers to his question, right? He asked this question, and Jesus said, you're going to have a throne, and you're going to have 100 times everything you have now. But Jesus then, in telling the parable, wants Peter to know that he's viewed the world in the wrong way, even though these things are true. He's viewed the world through himself. What will I gain from this Christian journey? What will I gain from following Christ? Not what is God gaining in the world, and how can I be part of it? These are very different ways. And don't take it in a cliche sort of sense, uh, in the sense that, you know, well, we want to do what God does, we shouldn't focus on ourselves. We need to see this all the way through to fully get the understanding of what's happening here. There's a me-centered way, and there's a God-centered way. You can read this parable from the perspective of the workers, can't you? The first person that we empathize with in this parable is the workers. It's the first place that our mind goes to. Well, wait a minute. Everyone got paid the same and that's a little bit, I don't know how I feel about that. And there are these people that, get, that come at five o'clock. So the Jewish workday is from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. That's a 12 hour workday, that's crazy. So some of these people are coming very early in the morning and working. Some of them came at five, which means they worked for one hour. Imagine working for 11 hours, toiling in a vineyard, planting, cultivating, trimming, whatever it is you're doing. And having someone else roll in at 5 o'clock and work for a little while and get the exact same thing as you. This is where our mind goes constantly in this parable. It's where my mind goes right away. I'm like, well, okay, we're going to preach about this. How How do we justify this? How do we make sense of what God is doing here? Because in the human sense, it doesn't make sense. You know what it's like to work with people who goof off all day long, and you're trying to do the right thing, and you make the same amount of money, and nothing ever seems to happen to that person. These situations are always happening in our life and so we're always ready to empathize with the worker. But there's a God-centered way to read the parable and this is the way we're intended to read it. That the landowner is actually the main character, not the workers in the vineyard. The landowner is actually the one whose this parable is completely centered around. And the idea is that the landowner goes and brings these people in He's unbelievably generous, unbelievably gracious, that he doesn't have to do any of this, but he chooses to do it. The landowner is central. The First thing that we realize here is that the landowner has and the workers don't have. Right? The landowner owns the land, he has the vineyard, he has money, and the workers are standing on the corner in the market, in the center of town desperate for someone to come hire them. That's the only way they're going to feed their family the next day. They're desperate. This is the picture of God and man. Isn't it? God, who's the creator of the universe. God, who's the possessor of all things, that all things are through him and all things are sustained by him. And man, who we think very highly of ourselves, but we're absolutely desperate. We can't do anything on our own. When we begin to view the parable this way, It's radically different. That God would even come to the center of town, to the marketplace, and bring us in, is unbelievably gracious. It's a totally different way to understand it. Now, we have to pause and think about a a theological concept that we all affirm, but that is very difficult for us to actually affirm and embrace with our hearts. That is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Uh, And the way that Jesus explains that in this parable is he says that God is the landowner; He owns it. The workers don't. Well, how does God's sovereignty play out? A few things that we need to understand. God's sovereignty, he always acts sovereignly in perfection. We know that from from the scriptures, that God always acts in perfection. He doesn't lie. He's without wrong. He's completely holy. We can trust his sovereign act. He's not lording things over us. And the reason is, the second reason, that God acts sovereignly in pursuit of his own glory. The, the, the move of God is fully aimed at making the name of God famous. Now, this is where we start to veer a little bit in our understanding of God's sovereignty. We, we believe that God acts in perfection, but all of a sudden when we see that his aim is his glory and not necessarily our own, this is where the rubber starts to meet the road. Right? Because at the beginning and the end of sovereignty is the issue of control. Who is in control? We love to sing songs. I love, let's just make it very personal, I love to sing songs about how God is in control. I love to pray and thank God for his control. And then when he makes choices, or seemingly makes choices, that don't line up with mine, I'm really angry with that, right? Right? There's some, something missing in our understanding of sovereignty. God acts sovereignly in perfection, in pursuit of his glory, which in the momentary doesn't always seem to fit up with our plans, but in the end was always the best way. Making his name famous, moving his kingdom forward. And then I think lastly, and this is what Jesus really wants us to understand in this parable, is that God acts sovereignly in love and kindness. Now, this is very different from sovereigns in our world. People who are ruling in our world, even the greatest people, and I don't know anyone personally who's ever been a president or a king or a prime minister or whatever it is that is the title of a leader of something else, but usually those people have some sense of power grab in them, have some sense of enjoying the control that is there, and aren't always motivated by love and kindness completely and wholly. But here's a God who is sovereign, who is after his own glory, yet the way that he makes his name famous is that he goes into the town, to the marketplace, to the people who are desperate, and he gives them a job. But God acts sovereignly in love in kindness. He doesn't need to do that. And what we find out is that he hires people and then keeps going back and hiring people. Now there's one way to read it that suggests he needs more people. They're not getting the job done. Maybe that's a great way to read it. Another way to read it, and I think this fits even better with the parable and the way Jesus wants to understand it, is he keeps going back and realizing there are still people here. So why not bring them in? Imagine this. The creator of the universe... The sovereign God of the world is that interested, is that motivated by love and kindness and compassion that he throughout the day is continuously returning to the marketplace just to be certain that there's not someone there who doesn't want work. If not for God being that God, none of us would have found him no one. There's a me-centered way to process the world. I worked for a long time, and these people are getting paid the same ways, same amount as me. And a God-centered way to read the world. If God hadn't come and found me, I never would have found him. Two very, very different things. Now, if we lead down those paths just a little bit, uh, the me-centered versus the God-centered, we begin to understand and and get to sort of the crux of this parable that the me-centered way of processing the world is concerned with the issue of fairness. The God-centered way of processing the world is concerned with the issue of grace. So we have the age-old question, is God fair? And sometimes in life we like to answer yes. And other times in life we like to answer not a chance if we're just being honest with each other right now. And I know, even in our small church, we've had people who've gone through unimaginable difficulties. Physical struggles, relational struggles, spiritual struggles, vocational struggles, and it is very easy to suggest, God's not fair. Why is this happening to us? So the question is before us. Is God fair? And, I think the theological answer is no. He is not fair. He's gracious. And grace supersedes fairness. If God was fair, what does scripture say about us? The wages of our sin is death. We were deserving of wrath. A fair God is not a God that would make me happy. A fair God would mean my demise. It would mean... That my life is going where it deserves to go. But a gracious God, the one who gives us something that we don't deserve, changes that completely. The question is not, is God fair? It's a shallow question, it's a momentary question. I understand the emotion of it. I'm not suggesting you should stop asking it as you process through the difficulty of the situation. But the answer to, is God fair, is God is generous. And God is gracious. Even at the, at the five o'clock hour, with one hour left, God is returning to the marketplace to find people who are without work and to bring them back. And in the end, they get the same as the one who's been toiling all day, i.e. I Peter, in this instance, as Jesus is saying. But it's the same for some of us. I, I think... and you're instantly drawn, I think, to that thief on the cross next to Jesus who confesses that Jesus is Lord and Jesus' response to him is, today you'll be with me in paradise. Who is the first person in the presence of God after the death, resurrection of Christ? A thief on a cross, not a disciple who gave up everything. First will be last and the last will be first. First. In our family, um, when we're going to drive, and I have no idea why this is, but the great fight in our cars, uh, and our, my boys will, will tell you, I told them last night I was going to say this, they'll, they'll vouch, this is true, is who will sit in the back seat behind daddy? And there is continual battles over this. Even though the back seat behind mommy is a much better seat, because there's more leg room, right? So I, this is what I try to explain to them, but you, there's no logic in these situations. <laughs> Who will sit in the back seat behind Daddy? And there's constant fight, and, the, and the, the battle always comes to what's fair. And so I'm trying to keep these ledgers in my mind of who sat there last time and who's going to sit there next time, and Rachel is trying to do it in her, and we're frying our brains to remember this because we're trying so hard to be fair. It's a silly illustration to know that so much of our life is centered around this idea of what's fair. What do I deserve? What's fair? What should I have? Is God fair? Why is God treating me this way? Why is he not treating me this way? So much of our life is given to what we perceive as fair or unfair when so much of our life should be given to what we perceive as grace and calling ourselves to stop living, as Philip Yancey would say, in ungrace. The God-centered view of the world is this unbelievable pool of grace that we get to swim in and are covered in. The me-centered view of the world is this dry and barren place where we're asking why this isn't fair. I don't say that to minimize any of the hardships that you have faced. They are hard. They are difficult. And as I've gone through experiences like that in my life, I too have asked and said to God, this isn't fair. I'm not trying to give you a Christian cliche answer to a difficult situation. Please ask and seek if God is not fair, but I pray that it will lead you to find that God is generous and gracious, that though we deserve death, and though we deserved wrath, God has given us life, and not just a life in the future, a life now that can be filled with joy and happiness and love and compassion and peace and kindness. Now, it's the generosity of God that we don't deserve. Is God fair? The me-centered world is all about fairness. The God-centered view of the world is all about grace. And if we dig a little bit deeper, why is it this way? Because in the me-centered world, we're focused on earning. And in the God-centered world, we should be focused on honoring. In the me-centered world, we're focused on earning. And in the God-centered world, we're focused on honoring. This is what I've done. This is exactly how Peter's view of the world, right? This is what I've done, Jesus... What am I getting for it? We understand this because we work 40 or 50 or 60 hours a week. Understanding that every two weeks or twice a month or however you're paid, we're going to get a paycheck. And if that stopped happening, trust me, we would stop going to work unless you really, really loved your job. We would stop doing it. But, but, so we have in, this, in ourselves this condition to understand the world in a, sen- in a sense of earning earning, but the God-centered world is in a sense of honoring, a sense of honoring, and so we can never earn God's affection, we can never earn God's approval, just like we say when we, we talk about the gospel, there's no way you could earn salvation, there's nothing that you can do, there's no sum of all the goods of your life that would equal eternal life for you, but God intervenes and provides a way. If this is the gospel that has brought us to faith, then why would we start living a Christian life that says, now I need to earn God's approval as a Christian? That's completely antithetical to the gospel. You cannot, even if you've trusted Christ and followed him and are filled with the Spirit, in and of yourself, you cannot please God. You cannot earn his affection or his approval by how well you live the Christian life. It's in God's grace that he grants us the Spirit who works through us to live this way. And so the Christian life is meant to honor God. The Christian life is not something we do because we've been saved by the gospel. It's something we do in response to the reality of the gospel in our life. Paul spends the entire book of Romans, 11 chapters, giving this unbelievable uh, treatise on the, on the Christian faith, on the gospel, that we were completely dead without Christ, that our life of rebellion was leading us to eternal punishment. Eternal separation from God. But God, in his, who is rich in grace and love, intercedes and gives us away. And that through Christ we are justified, declared righteous. And that as we continue to live in, in the Christian faith, somehow, supernaturally, God continues to sanctify us and ultimately will glorify us. And then when he gets to that very famous verse at the beginning of chapter 12, he says, therefore... Offer your bodies as living and holy sacrifices. This is your only acceptable form of worship. Based on these last 11 chapters, based on the reality of the gospel and the way that God has completely transformed your life because of Christ, this is why you offer your bodies as living and holy sacrifices. It's not because you're required to as a Christian. This is what God wants. You do it because you are honoring him, not because you're now earning his affection. I think this is, and maybe it's very deeply buried in us subconsciously, this is a great, great error of so many Christians, myself included, is that we're trying to live the Christian life in a way of sort of, of compiling these great Christian achievements so that God will think that we've done something wonderful. When the totality of the Christian life is simply meant to be aimed at honoring God because God has done something wonderful for us. There's a me-centered way to view the world, and there's a God-centered way to do the world. I was reminded um, when Rach and I were in premarital counseling, uh, this is just a random thought. One of the, one of the things that the, the the pastor was talking to us about is in the sense of how a husband and wife care for each other by sometimes intervening and taking care of chores for each other, and how sometimes those things are not necessarily motivated by good, by good things, right? Uh, and I confess that's, that's often true for me. So there'll be a, dishes after dinner, and a husband will go and do the dishes, and maybe that's your job in, in your marital construct, and that's fine, so maybe the wife will come and do it. And the ambition is not sort of to honor your wife and therefore do this, but it's to earn some semblance of affirmation from your wife, either to earn points that you'll need to cash in later or for your wife to come and praise you for it. You know? Maybe your wife and you go, modal. See, it goes both ways, it goes from child to parent, goes in friendships in every other way. So much of our life is motivated by earning things rather than by honoring. And so why do we serve God? Do we serve God to earn his affection? Or do we serve God to honor him for what he's done for us? Very different things very different things. I heard one person suggest, sort of in a way to open this up for people. When you pray to God, would you rather God answer your prayers based upon the good things you have done or based upon the generosity of God? But we live in a much different way so many times. And Jesus wants to open Peter's eyes to this and very much wants to open our eyes to this. There's two different ways to view the world. And then we get to the fruit. So the me-centered world that's focused on fairness, achieves it by earning things, the fruit of that is grumbling. The fruit of it is grumbling. The fruit of the God-centered view that's filled with grace, that lives to honor him, is gratitude. Grumbling and gratitude. These workers, instantly, it says it. instantly they grumble against one another. And if you were a Jewish, a Jewish person, as the disciples were, you would instantly have all kinds of pictures in your mind of grumbling. Because this is what categorized the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, right? God had intervened and done this unbelievable thing for his people. He had supernaturally led them out of Egypt, led them out of exile, and he was leading them into a good land. And a few days into the journey, they start grumbling. The food isn't good enough, because the people are coming after them, because there's not enough water to drink, even though God had done this unbelievable thing for them, had promised them a future, and was leading them towards it. And we love to read Bible stories like this and think, these people, how could they possibly? I mean, God just parted the Red Sea, and you walked through it, and the Egyptian army was coming after you, and he closed those waters and drowned all those people, and now you're grumbling about manna? And oh, if our life... Could be recorded in the annals of Scripture. How people might laugh at us too and might chastise us for the silly ways that we grumble. Grumbling is fruit, just like gratitude is fruit. And so, the simple question to understand how you have viewed the world is to ask yourself what is manifest in my life? Do I see grumbling or do I see gratitude? In a certain situation, do I see grumbling or do I see gratitude? Is there more gratitude in my life or more grumbling in my life? It will lead you all the way back up to understand how you've perceived the world. If you're aimed at God being fair or generous, if you've understood this idea of earning something or honoring God, grumbling or gratitude. Uh, This Later today, my family is going to leave for Ocean City, New Jersey. we will be there all week. My, my parents rent a house and our whole family comes and it's, it's a good time. And I'm reminded, uh, as I am whenever I go to the beach, uh, that my, one of my favorite things to grumble about is sunscreen. I hate sunscreen. I hate putting it on. I hate how it feels on. I hate how long it takes to put on. I hate that I've got to put it on my kids. I grumble about it all the time. But if I didn't put it on, and went to the beach in my fair, pale, northern European complexion, I would be red as a lobster. I would be burned. And the pain of that would be far worse than the, the, but this is how we live life, isn't it? Rather than being grateful that there is something that I can put on that can allow me to go out and not be burned by the sun and enjoy my children and family playing on the beach, I choose to grumble about the 10 minutes that it takes to put on and how slippery it makes my arms feel. This is so silly, but this is how we live life so much of the time. Why do people grumble? You've heard the, the saying, "You don't lose the, the forest for the trees." You heard that saying? I think grumbling happens when we lose the forest for the trees, doesn't it? So, so take it like this: We grumble when we have so focused on self that we miss the whole of humanity this is what's happening to me in this moment. It's not fair. I'm grumbling. But we miss the whole of what's happening in humanity. How God is working in people's life and drawing them to it. Particularly, we fall idle to the need to compare ourselves. Don't fall into the danger of comparative living. It is the greatest anvil that you could ever tie around your neck. What is happening in someone else's life does not have bearing on your life. Why or why not God is blessing someone's life when he seems to be withholding, even though, we'll talk about it in a minute, plenty of blessings are flowing in your life. None of this stuff is helpful But this is completely what the workers in the vineyard are doing. And so Jesus says to them, or the landowner says to them, why are you envious of my generosity? Uh, And another way to translate that is, why are you being evil in the face of my goodness? We fall into the trap of comparative living so much become so envious that we miss the richness of how God is blessing. Or we get so caught in the moment that we miss the whole, don't we? So this happens in one of two ways, usually. Either in the moment, we have done this unbelievably wonderful thing for God, right? Um, Or we've done really well and we've honored our parents, we've done this great thing, we've been good, we've lived well. And so we're wondering why like these radical heavenly blessings aren't falling on us, like that God should just suspend history for a moment and call all peoples of the earth forevermore and make a grand proclamation that Adam look what Adam has done here, history of people. We get in the moment and when that doesn't happen, we start to grumble. But we've lost the forest for the trees because we're in the moment and we forget that even though in the moment we've done well, that our history is filled with unfaithfulness and rebellion. And God's not holding that against us. There's totally different ways to view the world. Or maybe it's not that in the moment you were good. Maybe it's in the moment you were filled with misfortune. You received a bad diagnosis at the doctor's office. You've got bad news at the workplace. You're going through a rough patch in your marriage. And in the moment, we become so focused on that, and it's hard not to be, that we lose the bigger picture of how God has richly blessed us. Has just blessed us in immeasurable ways. And beyond physical things, it's the gospel, the presence of grumbling in our lives. Is telltale of one reality that the gospel has not dwelt deep enough in us. Now, we are all on a lifelong charge of letting the gospel dwell, so we are not going to be absent of grumbling. But what you will find is that the more the gospel is resonating in you, the more the gospel is becoming your story and not just a story from the pages of scripture, the more the gospel is in front of you and is in your mind constantly. The less you will find yourself grumbling because the gospel is all about generosity and grace to you. And it orients your life to honor, which gives you gratefulness and not grumbling. Can I suggest three ways that we can be proactive as a church so that we are not me-centric people who are focused on the fairness of God, who lives life that try to earn people's and God's affection, and therefore live lives that are characterized by grumbling. Three things, three Ps. First, you need to preach the gospel to yourself every day. Every day. Don't lose sight of it. It is not just an entry ticket to the ride. It's yours for the totality of the ride. That God is generous. That God is is gracious That God is giving you everything that you don't deserve. You deserve death, but you are sons and daughters of Creator God. That through Jesus' work on the cross, everything that should not be yours is yours. And everything that, every punishment that should not have been Christ's, He took for you. This is revolutionary news. This should change us. It's a whole new way of processing the world thinking about it and it's a whole new way that we are called to live in light of the gospel second pursue joy not happiness we've talked about this a lot in the past couple of weeks when we pursue happiness it is fleeting we grab it for for a little bit and then it's gone and we're always chasing after it it's like the dog that chases its tail although my sister once had a dog who could catch his tail and mangle it and chew it to pieces. Um, we have a dog that has a little stump for a tail, and she's so lazy she would never chase anything, right? But you're always after it, and you only ever get little taste of it, and you're always wanting it, and you're always feeling dry and desperate for it. Joy is not fleeting. It's a deep reservoir. But joy is very different than happiness. Happiness is about pleasure, Joy is about shalom. It's about finding that place where everything is right. That that in Christ, your connection to, to the Father is made whole and perfect, and you're pursuing completeness in this life that eventually will be possible in its total completeness in the life to come. Happiness only shows up when pleasurable things are happening. Joy can be present all the time. Joy can be present in the face of cancer. Joy can be present in the face of marital strife. Joy can be present in the face of joblessness. Joy can be present in the face of dry spiritual seasons. But joy only comes from the God-centered view of the world. That you are receiving everything that you do not deserve... And yet, there it is. It's a deep pool to swim in. And then lastly, you need to put or place memorials in your life. If you are anything like me, it is so easy to forget. So when Jesus, or excuse me, when God uh, parts the Jordan River for the Israelites to finally go into the Promised Land, his order to them is go into the dry basin of the river, gather 12 stones and build a memorial so that for generations to come, people will remember what I did this day. Why don't we do stuff like that? You don't have to build a 12-stone monument in your den, you know, so that you can remember when the Israelites crossed the Jordan River. But you can find tangible and practical ways to remember the ways that God has blessed you. So that, in the dry spiritual seasons, in the dark Uh, physical struggles, seasons, in the difficult emotional seasons, you can return to those places and remember that God is good all the time. That God is generous. That God is full of grace. That God has given you everything that you don't deserve. Maybe it's a cross necklace that you wear around your neck. That every so often it tingles or touches and you remember what Christ has done for you. Maybe it's, it's a photograph of a time in your life that you put in a frame and place in a special place. Maybe it's a certain passage of scripture that you highlight and you return to. Possibilities are endless, and you can make it specific to you. God didn't necessarily just tell the Israelites to build a memorial because he wanted something there that spoke of him. He knows how we're wired that we will forget. That the very next time things start to not go our way, we will grumble in the wilderness, even though the Red Sea was just days ago. So find ways to remember the goodness of God. Preach the Gospel to yourself daily. Pursue joy, not happiness. And place memorials throughout the path of your life so that you will remember because there are two ways to view the world a me centered and a God centered. And the beauty of this parable is that God would come from his land to the center of the market and find any workers at all to come work in his vineyard. Do you know that a denarius, which is what he offered uh, the first workers and ultimately what he paid every worker, A denarius is what a Roman soldier was paid, a denarius a day. So if you are a a day by day worker and someone offers you a denarius, this is radically better than what anyone has probably ever paid them before. It's why they signed on right away and went off with them. But suddenly when life starts to unfold, the joy of receiving more than you should have begins to fade. There are ways to not let that happen. But it only is possible when we live in the reality of the gospel. Is God fair? No. But he is generous and full of grace. And I would rather have that than fairness. Let's pray.